Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast. Today I'm interviewing Alison Parker. We're going to talk about innovation, uh, creating new services, and I won't give too much away. I'll let her share a bit more about what that means. I just want to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm podcasting from today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kula Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the podcast, Alison. Hi, thank you so much, Marie. And um, I'd like to start by just saying my pronouns are she, her, and that as a cisgendered female, I understand my extreme privilege being educated white female um, and also acknowledge the fabulous um, LGBTQIA plus community out there, um, the current and the past who have kind of paved the way for the work that we're doing here. Excellent. And so we met a little while ago at a local MHPN meeting. So if you're listening and you're in Australia, that's a really great resource. I encourage you to go to the MHPN uh, website, the Mental Health Professionals Network, and you can find some networks close by. Uh, a lot have moved on to telehealth at the onto Zoom. I was going to say telehealth. <laughs> um, they're onto kind of online forums at the moment. So you might be able to attend some that are um, in different areas that you might not have access to. So we met um, looking at transgender mental health and supporting young people and their families. And we had a side conversation. So do you want to share with listeners where that went? What's going yeah. on? <laughs> yeah, that was a fabulous introduction. I was so excited when I saw that opportunity to um, participate in that meeting. So it was with the psychiatrist, Dr. Tran Nguyen from the Royal Children's Gender Service, um, giving us information on young people, so either pre-adolescent, uh, pre-puberty or adolescent youth that accesses the gender clinic there um, who are either questioning their gender or quite um, quite solid in their gender identity and seeking help to affirm their gender. Um, affirming your gender can take on many different um, forms for people and I think in youth it, it's quite uh, it's quite an unknown area, especially for parents um, who are trying to navigate it, trying to be supportive of their children. But sometimes parents really don't understand what it's all about, especially if they've not um, been um, exposed to other people that may identify as trans, gender diverse or non-binary. So, yeah, so the, the workshop meeting was fantastic and we just got chatting um, amongst the group where everyone's level of interest was and I kind of identified that I was starting an innovation challenge as a lead to look at the unmet needs of the transgender, gender-diverse, non-binary community out west um, to see what do they need, what is lacking in the western suburbs of Melbourne 
and what can we do to address it? Um, yeah, I work at a community health centre. Um, my past professions is as an emergency nurse and paramedic, so I've always worked in health, always worked out west and lived out west. <laughs> Um, so for me, it was just a, a perfect opportunity to see what we could do. Yeah, absolutely. So we got the talking about your project and your innovation challenge, and um, it was really exciting. So we know that there are very few services, especially for young people, and I know your mm. innovation project's not around necessarily for young people at the moment, Um but trying to, we were trying to kind of brainstorm different services and different options for young people to access mental health support as well as um, a range of other support around gender identity. And that's when your project um, piqued my interest. Tell us about the project. What is it and what can we look forward to happening? Yeah, sure. So I might start off by saying that my interest really came about because my daughter, who's now 20, um, she came out as transgender um, to me at the age of 18. Um, I've been supporting her for years um, with her mental health issues and um, her mental health team and myself, we kind of knew there was a sticking point that we weren't really getting to. Like we knew there was something in the background that was kind of stopping the progress of her therapy and her treatment. Um, so when she came out to, to me and then I came, told the psychiatrist because she was a bit scared how to approach that, it all just made sense. And for me as a mum, it was like this sigh of relief but also disappointment that um, I thought she didn't know how to tell me. Um, and I was like, oh, if that was, is that the whole thing that's been really troubling you and really causing an effect on your mental health? And um, I suppose the blessing for us is she didn't even realise. So her friends kind of realised before her. Um, so, yeah, so when we were accessing, we, I was trying to find services and it was as basic as where do I start? Mm. What services does she actually need? And ultimately, for me, it was who is going to be safe, welcoming, and that we got the right information for what she needed. Um, and that's when I realised there is nothing out west, like next to nothing, certainly public health-wise, nothing. Um, we travelled to the north suburbs of um, Melbourne who are fabulous, let me tell you, the existing services that are around are amazing. Um, but they're overstretched. They've got massive waiting lists. Um, the professionals that work in there are very passionate but very overworked. Um, so they were issues, and I suppose as a health professional, I'm like, we could do better than this, like out west. We deserve something like this out west. So, Where were you working at the time? Were you in this role? No. So this role's kind of been created um, because I saw a need. Um, so I work at a community health centre called IPC Health, 
We're one of the largest in Victoria, um, certainly the largest in the western suburbs of Melbourne. So we encompass Brimbank, Hobsons Bay and Wyndham municipalities. Um, we do some work out at Mountain also. Um, yeah, so our, our values at IPC Health is about being creative, passionate and making a difference. And there was an opportunity called the inaugural Shark Tank Innovation <laughs> Challenge where I don't know if anyone's seen the TV show Shark Tank. <laughs> so it's basically that where we submitted applications to pitch our idea, our vision um, to leaders in other organisations like businesses. So there was like um, leaders within the Murdoch Institute, um, Movember, the Youth Council, um, and that's where I pitched my idea that there is a real need out there out in the western suburbs to support the transgender, gender-diverse, non-binary community with their health services, so specific health services to support their affirming, like affirming their gender, but also what we found is that they're not even attending mainstream services for their general health needs. Um, so I pitched the challenge and the this um, innovation challenge and um, happy to say that we were funded quite generously to run a five-week innovation challenge or workshop. We did 10 workshops. Um, the difference with our one compared to other ones in IPC was we actually made a point of having it community-led. So they, we brought community members from the trans, gender-diverse and non-binary community to work with us. So we could find out really what do they need, how do we do it, and, um, and also importantly, how do we know we're doing it right for them? Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. We've just finished that a couple of weeks ago and we presented to the executives of our organisation uh, yesterday. Excellent. So a lot of sort of, well, maybe not at the point of co-design yet, but a lot of in being informed by service users themselves. Yeah. So the Innovation Challenge by its very nature is a co-design platform. So we had two facilitators who was able, were able to navigate us through that. Um, we certainly, we had three outcomes we wanted to achieve. So they were that we clearly defined the problem and the unmet needs, um, identify and secure possible partnerships that can provide safe, trusted and integral care. Um, and also third was to create a high level model that we could look at implementing. Um, look, initially, we were wondering if we were going to meet the third outcome because there was so much information to unpack. Mm. When you work with community, and let me tell you, it was an absolute incredible experience and I'd encourage anyone, if they're looking at implementing new services or expanding their existing services, to really think about bringing those community members that are going to access this service on board. Um, so there was a, a whole range of information. As soon as we started our Zoom, it was this um, 
amazing wealth of information, but you could tell that the community members have been waiting a very long time to share their stories, their trauma, their experiences, their barriers, um, and what their hopes are, more importantly, um, for services out west. Um, but from that, we did create a model, um, like I said, that we've um, presented to our executives and it was really received um, well yesterday. Um, and more importantly, we identified that we want our community members to continue working with us to create that service. Excellent. So what is the proposed service or what are some of the actual outcomes? Yeah. So um, with the proposal, um, it was pretty evident that um, to meet the needs of the community, there was two underpinning themes that were um, major considerations. So it's the physical health needs. Mm -hmm that a person needs to not only affirm their gender, um, but it became very apparent that people are actually not going to mainstream GPs, um, clinics, any services until they're at crisis point because of the trauma they've experienced or the harm they've experienced in the past. So this could be as... Um, as something like being misgendered or using their dead name, so using the name that they were assigned at birth by their parents um, but they don't identify with, but through to just a lack of understanding from professionals. Um, you know, many explained that they were kind of seen oddly, like they would get stares, they would get asked questions that a, a person that had the same condition coming in wouldn't be asked those questions. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it was the physical health, but then also mental health. That That is another major consideration. So what we've adapted in our model is that we require a multidisciplinary service for the person accessing our health. So this is not only a GP, it would be a nurse, to assist with um, taking of testings like um, cervical screening tests, education on breast screening, testicular checks, um, all of those that for the cisgendered community, yes, they're uncomfortable, but we know we tend to do those things. Whereas for the trans transgender um, non-binary or gender diverse person, that can be quite traumatic. So with that, we also want to implement a wellbeing coordinator, counselling support. Um, the other things that we're looking at is partnering up to have pathology services um, and a pharmacy included in that because pathology, so their blood testing, is quite regular with their hormone replacement therapy. We've got to monitor their hormone levels, but also the pharmacist can be a quite confronting place mm. when they're needing to regularly go and get their prescriptions. Yeah. So what I'm really hearing, and I think, and we touched on it a bit in the meeting we when we met, was around it's 
not necessarily always stigma, but a lack of understanding that's a barrier to receiving not just gender-specific healthcare, but overall healthcare. So as you were yeah. saying, um, feeling uncomfortable or unsafe to access your, you know, your regular local services. Yeah. And so people are not attending and maybe letting other health challenges that have probably often nothing to do with their gender expression or their mm. gender identity go unchecked. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we did some interviews also. So we had um, community members on our core team that we met for the 10 um, workshops, but we also had opportunities to do interviews. We had a 20-person, young person group as a focus group. Um, and it was just, um, especially as a health professional, it was just really upsetting for me to hear that people were, you know, like, with a urine infection, were waiting until things were so desperate that they would go to the emergency department because they would rather be treated there because they don't have to regularly see them like a GP, that they'd get their treatment and go off and they'd be almost like just, you know, um, absorbed in the crowd. But for me, I was like, wow, that, you know, A, you're that's jeopardising your health so you can get even added complications from that. Yes, you get your treatment, but who's doing your follow-up care? Who's ensuring that, you know, you get your blood test following up to make sure that the condition has improved or the medication you're on is correct um, and also maybe some even some education in some settings. Um, so that was quite upsetting, but at the same time, as a group, it was quite like we believed everything that was being said. Everything, there was never any doubt about the content that was shared, um, was ever inflated or misrepresented. Like these were very raw stories, but I could see it. I could see what would be happening mm. um, or visualise it. So for us... The main aim is to improve health outcomes for everyone in our community, which that's what the premise of our public health system is about, um, but also the people that feel marginalised and vulnerable have the same opportunities of accessing health services to address their health needs. And a major factor of that is actually mental health support also. Yeah. I mean, we could have so many episodes on this topic yeah. um so I'm trying to try to keep it contained because I really yeah. I do get excited I'm actually enthralled in what you're saying it's a part of me wants to ask what can what are some of the do's and don'ts for other people who don't yet have access to a targeted service but I'm also wondering for our listeners most of them are in um, social work or other allied health mm. so this systemic thinking is so helpful so maybe there's a way to kind of answer both so just hearing um, some of those bits and pieces and all the stories of the community groups uh, the co-design process what are some mm. general do's and don'ts that practitioners providers people listening can take away to maybe make that journey a little bit easier for some 
clients? Yeah. And look, that's an absolutely um, great question. And it was a question we were asking our community members too. Because um, when we were when we're looking at designing a service, we're not only looking at a specific service for the community, what they told us is they still want to access mainstream services too. So it is um, it is basically from the get-go, you know, your environment, making sure that it is welcoming, that you've got signage visible, that either it's a flag or posters saying that everyone is welcome here, that we don't tolerate any bad behaviour, um, harassment, bullying or discrimination. They're really important signs for people. Um, the community said they do actually look for those subtle signs in, their, in the places that they go to. Um, for the clinician, um, especially I suppose if you've got your own private practice, um, but even organisations, is looking at your paperwork making sure that there are areas that you can identify a person's identity, um, their sexual orientation, their pronouns. So you can use the correct pronouns when speaking to the person. So whether it's she, he, she her, him, him, his, he, him. <laughs> yeah, and they, them, or some people go with their own pronouns. So we, we have community members using their own name as a pronoun. So it's being able to identify it, but use it more importantly. And as a clinician or a person that works with people of the transgender, diverse, non-binary community, and let me tell you, if you think you haven't worked with them, you absolutely have. You just It's just not being visible to you or they haven't mm -hmm. felt safe to say it um, or a need to say it. Yeah. Um, but always introduce yourself as the same, you know, to the same standards. So when I came, you know, I started with you, Marie, I said, I'm Alison and I use she, her pronouns. That way we're on a level playing field. You know, there's no... There's no kind of distinction that someone has to disclose something to me that I don't need to disclose to them. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what? What we've had um, another um, presenter talk about a similar topic, and they encourage people to think: What's the one step you can do after listening to this? So is it in your email signature on your LinkedIn yeah. profile? Um, you know, whether you have a flag visible on your lapel like a little pin or in yeah. your office or changing your pronoun so there are things that people can do almost immediately absolutely and one of the questions I get from some of my um you know supervisees and some of the students I work with is they're scared that what if the person I, I say I'm I'm not judgy and I'm open to this but then they ask me something I don't know so there's this fear of unknown uh, and I often encourage them to actually say there are some things I don't know. How about I meet with you tomorrow, next session, let me do a bit of research and get back to you. It's actually okay to say, I don't know, as long as you're open and curious. Absolutely. And I think that is a good basis for just being a human also, to be quite frank. Um, I do it with my kids. 
Um, and I'll just, good, you're a human. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm just like, I don't know that at the moment. And I think showing that vulnerability, um, even in your professional setting, puts the person at ease. That you're not making things up for the sake of answering questions. If they're asking you a question about you, you can ask them to clarify and what kind of information are they seeking. Yeah. Um, and I would say from the utmost, if you do misgender someone um, or not use the correct pronouns, apologise, correct your mistake and then move on. The community, what I have found, is the most compassionate, understanding um, and respectful community members. And they would, um, you're building that level of trust and safety by showing, showing those gaps in knowledge, in knowledge and they might be able to educate you. Like it might be a term that you're not familiar with that they're using. Ask them but ask them in a respectful way out of genuine curiosity mm-hmm. um, to better yourself. Um, I know there are some community members that say, look, we're kind of sick and tired of trying to educate other people. Um, and that might be the case for your client or patient, and that's yeah. okay. Um, but many I found, if you are genuinely really interested in knowing their story, they will offer that information. Yeah. But be open. And I think that's the key. Like you said, it is about being a, a good human, but that curiosity, it's across the board. Like you can across any presentation. I mean, I, I'm coming at it from a mental health professional where I think someone might throw me a curly one and I think I I actually don't know a lot about that. Let me let me park it for now and I'll get back to you and I'll go and do some research. And then if it's something that I think is beyond my skill set or can't easily be, um, you know, knowledge that I can absorb and work with, I might then say, just like a GP might, I think you need to go to a specialist. Here are some recommendations. Let me ask my peers if they've got anyone they recommend. And I, people seem to like that honesty that you don't pretend you know anything and give them the option. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, I don't know a lot about that. I can learn with you in my own time. I'll do the reading, the professional development, the secondary consult. We can do it together. I'm happy to refer you on. We can jointly work. Some, so what, are, what would you feel comfortable with? And often people like that honesty, regardless of the topic, whether it's gender, a particular family issue, a relational dynamic, a mental health, you know, maybe a representation, just saying, I don't know a lot about it what's your experience, what's important for me to know, and let me get back to you with let me freshen up or brush up on my skills. Absolutely. And I think that is a great attitude to have and way of practising. I know as a health professional, I've always said the day I stop learning about something is the day I need to kind of put this away because our world is always developing there is new information, new skills and developments in both health and mental health. And I think as a practitioner or a clinician, it's our duty to continue learning and identify our gaps. Um, Our community members have told us um, that they know when someone is bluffing 
or lying to it. <laughs> and they would rather that you would be honest and you don't know something and that yeah. you're happy to work on that than giving them information that might not be factual, yeah. that sometimes it can actually hurt them, you know, um, or be dismissive, like if, they're, if it's not validating their concerns. Um, we did speak quite a bit about the, um, our model that we're looking at introducing, that we talked about the concept of being either person-centred or what's the correct term. And as a collective, we actually didn't like the word um, person-centred because we almost visualised it as that we're in the middle and everyone's looking in on us and talking to us coming in. So we were more looking at our model and we don't know what the term is yet, but it's more of a person-led model that our transgender, gender diverse and non-binary folks actually know their body the best. They know their identity the best. And they're the best people to tell us how they want to affirm their gender. Yeah. So we, you know, I think with any professionals, we can't, we all know there's certain people that have a very, um, very big power in their profession, you know, and it comes through if you're that vulnerable client or patient, if you have that attitude that you've done all of these qualifications and you've had this experience and you may have done research and it's not to invalidate that all, but as a client or patient, that's not what they want to see. They want to see someone on their level that mm. can speak to them and collaborate with them to get their, the best health outcomes for their situation. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind as you mentioned that is it makes me think about that earlier point you were making about the struggle to access generalist health services. Mm. And I have, um, I work with some uh, young adults who I've only ever known them as the gender they identify with now. Mm. And so we, we don't need to keep revisiting things from the past, but just being aware that some of their experience in either their journey coming out, the secrets they've had to hold, people's judgments or stigma, that has had an impact on who they can trust and how safe they feel now. So it's sometimes it's recognising the intersectionality as well. Like they might be coming for just a regular relationship issue or workplace oh. issue or some anxiety or rumination that has nothing to do with their gender identity, but maybe how they trust services, how scared they are to open up the um, little T trauma that they've experienced in their, their story mm. that has had an impact. Absolutely. And so we don't need to make the gender the front and centre, but just recognising and sometimes even overting saying, I wonder if, you know, you're, you've had trouble trusting people in the past, you know, asking really general questions that, show that there's an understanding that it's not they're not struggling at the moment with their gender but that journey has maybe contributed to a distrust in services challenges with interpersonal relationships maybe a friend or a parent has said something that's sort of stayed with them and kind of is hurtful yeah absolutely and i think also we don't want to um rule out also that even though they're very comfortable with their gender identity 
Um, there are a lot of people that aren't able to come out safely for either fear of stigma, discrimination, violence, hate, um, or, or even just um, isolation from their um, family, friends, network. Um, so it is, a, it is a lot about trauma-informed work that has to take place with the transgender, gender diverse and non-binary community. So I think your points are very, um, very valid, Marie, and I think they're important to always have those in the background. Um, but you're right that, you know, you don't need to keep harping on their gender when they're very affirmed and they know often that is not the angst that they're coming to you with. Mm. It's all the associated past traumas or past experiences or even the current troubles they're having. You know, um, we talk about um, affirming a person's um, gender and the transition to do that, there is social and then medical, which can lead into surgical or not, and then the legal affirmation or transition. So people do those four steps not in the same order and some only do a couple of them everyone's journey is different and is okay for them um, some people won't socially come out until they feel that they have medically transitioned so whether they're using hormone replacement therapies or other therapies um, to appear to the community more to the gender that they're identifying with. Mm. But others are sometimes happy just to affirm their gender socially, so out with friends, out in their school, their workplace, their family, um, and don't want to do all, any of the others, and that's mm. okay too. And I think... Um, you know, I think people think that when someone is transitioning, they're going to go through the whole gamut and even surgically transition, and there's not actually a high percentage of that. Um, so it's important that people understand that and be okay with it because they're certainly okay with it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think we need to recognise that this community is quite susceptible to ongoing discrimination and stigma and harm. Um, so even though they're very affirmed in their gender, we're not quite sure sometimes what their experience at home is. Mm. Um, so we do need to be very mindful of that because unfortunately a lot of people are not still safe. Yeah. And I think, I mean, on a softer approach to that, I, I think it'd be great to even have another episode where it's just looking at the... The impact it has on family, not yeah. necessarily from lack of support. Sometimes just a, grief is the best word I can I can think of of particular um, formula for life or a particular journey. And I think that's a challenge in maybe the adult services where the moment someone turns eighteen, the family is not routinely included in that 
conversation. And I think mm. it can put a lot of pressure on the young person or the young adult to lead those conversations with, like to, to navigate. Mm. I'm, I'm an adult. I'm independent. I want to do this, but I might want to repair relationships with my parents. How do I include them in this? How do they stay involved? And I think that's a really tricky space where even some older clients, it might be, how do I navigate that with my children mm. that I'm now transitioning or I'm identifying differently and you know there's there's so much in the family and the system thing as well that can be a real protective factor or be a really big source of loss and grief and trauma and sometimes a bit of both yeah and and you bringing that um to this place you're right it is actually probably another topic and I know Dr Tram you and mentioned it, that when she sees young people at the Royal Children's Gender Service, that it, the actual person that, you know, wants to affirm their gender is quite settled in their decision, but it's the family that needs to catch up and, and need the support to be able to support their child. Mm. Um, so a lot of, as she was saying, a lot of her work is about supporting the family through that process for themselves. Um, the Q group that I met with were fabulous. So they, they were aged between 12 and 25 and there was 20 of them and we were discussing what their hopes are for a possible, you know, if it was a blue skies, kind of no limits, no budgetary constraints, what would you love to see? And, you know, a lot of those young people were about developing better relationships with their parents, their family members. Um, and they did mention even as adults, if, you know, they have children and how do they support their children with the transition also. So it is major, you know, it's a major factor. Mm. Young people are living at home for a lot longer too. So you still need to coexist at home with your family members and if you're not able to be your authentic self in your home environment that is incredibly challenging mm. you know you spend a lot of time there um, if you feel you can't either be safe or just comfortable being who you are I think that I'm just going to make a note that might be a separate topic where we look at how do we support um families through that journey and what can service providers do to facilitate some of those discussions in a non it's really it's a fine line because we don't want to be we don't want to shame or blame but we also need to call out sometimes some of the harmful things and not be you know it's how do we show some tolerance and not be intolerant to intolerance but also calling it out when it's it's so complex and I think sure some people is. just don't know what to, how to go into that space yeah and look and and I'm not sure if I'm the perfect person for it because I come from a space of my family um with my trans daughter we just it was just like ah, oh, okay you know and it was such a non-issue the issues were about how do we navigate to affirm her gender and, and help the transition. Yeah. Um, even her sisters, I remember we, we sat around the, um, the kitchen table. It was Christmas Day and we were sharing presents and um, my daughter said, girls, I need to tell you something. And she and I, we kind of looked at each other and I'm like, yeah, go for it. And um, she said, you know, I, I'm a girl. And both her sisters went, 
oh, yeah, we kind of figured something like that. And then we just moved on. Oh, well, actually, then we were all, everyone was spilling the beans about their sexuality, actually, and they were asking me. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So <laughs> as a mum, I'm like, right, okay, yep. At least we know where everyone stands. Um, so I suppose for me, it's been a positive experience. I can certainly appreciate that when I was a little kid, I didn't know anyone that was transgender, gender diverse or non-binary. It was certainly not visible. Mm. Um, I came from a migrant family. So, you know, I was non-English speaking when I started primary school. And um, so for me, I had a very insular life. So I can appreciate um, other parents if they come into... Um, a space with their child that they don't understand and I think that's that's the whole thing they just don't understand it it's completely foreign to them they're scared you know and especially we all want to belong to communities in different ways so you don't want to be on your own you know um, experiencing something on your own so it could be quite scary for them Mm. too but I think with the right support um for the family members so they know it's actually going to be okay you know um the child that you have is still your child that doesn't change um and that there is support out there like there's um parents of um I'll have to look it up for you I'm pretty sure the the group is called parents of gender diverse children they're a fabulous resource to support parents. Um, we can probably put that link on. I can find you that. That was created yep. by two parents who had um, transgender, gender diverse children, and they recognised there was no support for them. Yeah, so there's resources out there. I was actually going to say, what are some resources? So how about we, um, there's a couple as well that I know of, we can pop them in the show notes for people to look at some yeah resources for um, young people, for parents, for service users, as well as for professionals to upskill their knowledge. Absolutely. And I know the um, the Primary Health Network, um, the Northwest Primary Health Network has um, a transgender training module. Um, there's excellent resources at um, Transgender Victoria um, that people can look at, so resources and training opportunities. So, we'll, yeah, we might grab all that kind of information and then you can share that with your your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just having a quick look now at that. It's a the trans GP module. Is that the one? Uh, yeah, there's that one. Yes. Great. We'll put them all up and there's some yeah. Health Alliance. Rainbow, yeah, beautiful. We'll yeah, there's a few there. Yeah, Minus18 have um, have training information yep. on their website. Thorn Harbour Health are fabulous with training. So there are resources out there. Yeah, Excellent. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's really exciting to be welcoming a new bricks and mortar service in the West. Yeah, thank you. Do we have some vague timelines when we can... Well, cut, we cut that red ribbon. Yeah, look, I, I suppose ultimately for us, we're in for the long haul. 
our organisation have recognised that there's a definite need in community. Um, we're estimating that we probably have a population of about 3,000 just in the LGAs alone that we have, and they're conservative numbers when you look at the WHO statistics. Um, so we are in for the long haul. At the moment, I'm just waiting to hear from the executive team if we'll be funded for the next phase, which will be the setup. But the organisation are very committed to having this um, up and running. So hopefully, watch this space. It will be in the next few months that we can maybe catch up again and talk about how we've started implementing services. Yeah, that'll be wonderful. But Thanks. it will. Oh, thank you. But it will be with um, our fabulous community members. So it, yeah. They're the ones that are going to be shaping all of this for us. Wonderful. And thank you so much for taking the time to share this exciting project or innovation challenge. Um, and congratulations for winning it. I love the, I'm picturing this big shark tank thing with like all these judges. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well it was done. similar, but they were very friendly. So that was lovely. <laughs> but no, thank you, Marie, for your time. And um, I'm no way of an expert, but if anyone needs any further information or support, um, they can reach out and I'm happy to chat or link you in with other more relevant people that can talk to you about it. Excellent. Well, you know, I think it's, we don't always need, you know, the big fancy experts. We're trying to talk about what we see on the ground. This is the best information we have now. If this changes, we'll update another episode. We acknowledge what we've learned and just keep, you know, it's real people doing real stuff on the ground in a local capacity. And I think people like to hear about that. Yeah, thank you. You're so right. And that's where it, it hits the most important mark, isn't it? It's for our community members that yeah. are desperately needing support. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Marie listening to today's podcast be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts